Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. It's morning in America. It's Monitor Monday. For rural hospitals and small town clinics, big city health systems, and healthcare professionals, Monday means Monitor Monday. And Monday means gearing up for another week of audits by the government and health plans. Here now with the latest regulatory and audit news is the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Monitor Monday. We have a great deal of news to report this morning as we begin the fifth week of Ipspalooza. More on that later in the broadcast. In the meantime, controversy continues to swirl around the CMS proposed changes to EM reimbursement. Reporting on that developing story is Shannon DeConda. In other news, CMS finalized rules last week for inpatient rehabilitation facility providers. Angela Phillips is standing by with details on that final rule. CMS also last week finalized the rule for skilled nursing facilities. Lori O'Hara has that report. Healthcare attorney David Glazer has another example of risky business. And Nancy Beckley has the latest hot topics in what we're calling this morning the Monitor Monday Listener Quiz. But we begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Services. Here now making his Monday rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, all. Last week was a quiet week, other than the continuing talk about the proposed changes to the E&M coding. On Saturday, I was in Atlanta at a case management conference, and several of the topics of discussion led me to this segment called Back to the Basics. So basic number one, the condition code 44 process of changing an inpatient to an outpatient always requires involvement of a physician member of the Utilization Review Committee, even if the attending is changing their own order. The UR committee physician must be on the hospital medical staff with voting privileges. A physician working for an external physician advisory company can suggest that an inpatient admission was not proper and that that the patient status should be changed, but their advice is only a suggestion. You still must consult a UR committee physician. Number two, the condition code 44 process is required for every change from inpatient to outpatient if the patient has been formally admitted as an inpatient. Now, there's a lot of ambiguity here, but an order for inpatient admission does not constitute formal admission. It is the process of formally admitting the patient that makes them an inpatient. So that does leave a little wiggle room. The patient enters an inpatient order, but the patient is not yet formally admitted. The inpatient order can simply be canceled without the condition code 44 process. So the questions to ask are whether anybody has acted on that admission order to formally admit the patient. Did registration come visit them? Was the important message from Medicare given? Did the patient leave the ED? If the answers are no, no, and no, I think it's safe to say the patient probably was not formally admitted. It's tricky though, because the time the order is placed is what's used to count days for SNF qualification. So shouldn't that also be the time of formal admission and require a condition code 44? Well, until CMS actually defines what constitutes a formal admission, I'm gonna say this is one place where we can have our cake and eat it too. Number three, delivering the follow-up copy of the important message to Medicare from Medicare is difficult. Predicting when a patient is gonna be discharged can often be a challenge. To reduce this burden, some hospitals have a process where every Medicare and Medicare Advantage patient is given a copy of their IMM on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. 
If you're one of those hospitals, stop. It is not permitted. The follow-up copy can only be given if discharge is anticipated. If you have to deliver it on the day of discharge, that is permitted, but you do need to offer the patient four hours to decide if they want to appeal. Now, don't go chaining them to the bed for those four hours. They can choose to leave earlier. And remember, if the patient discharges within two calendar days of receiving the initial copy, you're not required to give the follow-up copy. Now, that's all the basics I have for today, Chuck. Back to you. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch, very much. That was the Vice President of R1 Physician Advisory Services, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. And now with the latest hot topics and what we're calling the Monitor Monday listener quiz, here is Monitor Monday Senior Correspondent Nancy Beckley. Good morning, Nancy. Good morning, Chuck. It's bright and sunny here on the Milwaukee River Parkway, and it's great to be on a rehab broadcast today. It's kind of fun with my colleagues here. Chuck, I want to bring up um, the Bipartisan Budget Act of 2018, passed in February of this year, permanently eliminated the outpatient therapy caps. $2,010 for PT and speech and $2,010 for occupational therapy. However, the pay for, for this re- elimination of the cap was to develop a payment reduction for physical therapist assistance and occupational therapy assistance by 15% beginning in 2022. CMS in the proposed rule has indicated that they are going to come up with these modifiers to so signify when therapy has been provided in whole or in part by an assistant, a PTA or an OTA. I think that probably this is going to go through, given that there is a longstanding model of well over 20 years of nurse practitioner, physician assistant reduction and reimbursement when they're using their own numbers. However, CMS is not proposing that PTAs and OTAs separately enroll in Medicare. Rather, they're going to come up with this modifier. What's really important is that our listeners here that have outpatient therapy, no matter what your site of service, that you identify where your assistants provide service and how you are so noting. Are they providing service by having it on their schedule for a specific patient? Are they providing service by participating in a therapist treatment? Or are they working as a team, a PT and a PTA or an OT and an OTA? This is critically important as we move forward and looking at this. And the, uh, your comments on the proposal will be able to be submitted online. And I believe they need to be in, Dr. Hirsch will correct me if I'm wrong, by September 10th of 2018. So the PTA and OTA proposed reductions and reimbursements start with the identification of when services were provided in whole or in part by these assistants. So that's that. Uh, Emily, can you please bring up our poll this morning? And once again, our poll, which we're now renaming a quiz, we sound like CMS renaming stuff, I guess. Um, We are going to acknowledge our good friends at the American College of Physician Advisors for sponsoring our poll. So our poll this morning is courtesy of David Glazer. An independent cardiology group is interpreting ECGs performed in an ED. They discovered the ED was requesting these on all patients without regard for medical necessity. Does the cardiology group need to refund for the interpretations it did? Check one, yes, it needs to refund all of the past ECGs. 
The second one is, yes, it needs to work with the e out what claims were unnecessary, but it can keep the money for the necessary claims. Or no, number three, it's appropriate for the cardiology group to keep the money. And the fourth option is, I don't know, that's why I listen to Monitor Monday, or it's non-applicable. We'll be back a little bit later with the results of the poll. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you, Nancy, very much. That was Monitor Monday Senior Correspondent, Nancy Beckley. Nancy is President and CEO for Nancy Beckley and Associates. And as Nancy said, we're going to have the results of the Monitor Monday listener quiz later in the broadcast. And coming up at about nine and a half minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from Shannon Aconda, David Glazer, Laurie O'Hara, and Angela Phillips. This is Monday, it's August 13th, and it's the fourth week of Ipsalusa. It's a summer school to learn all about the inpatient prospective payment system. It's the final rule now, and this is Monitor Monday. Stand by. Are you frustrated by compliance webcasts that are simply a rehash of everything you already know? Are you looking for fresh, timely compliance content that is as relevant to your compliance team as it is to the HIM and Revenue Cycle teams? Look no further than the Rack Monitor Compliance Webcast subscription. Now you and your team can get the latest compliance and regulatory information directly from Rack Monitor, the industry's most respected source of compliance and auditing news and education. Subscribe to the Rack Monitor Educational Webcast subscription now so everyone on your team and other departments will have the latest information to stay compliant while avoiding audits and takebacks. For more information and to subscribe to the Rack Monitor Educational Webcasts, click on the Handout tab in today's program. We're back in the program note. The 2019 IPS Final Rule has been published. Dr. Ronald Hirsch has a very important webcast coming your way this Thursday, August 16th. Learn all about the new important changes to the inpatient admission order requirements. To register to attend, go to the handout tab at today's Monitor Monday. And now let's check in with healthcare attorney David Glazer. David has insight and, we think, the correct answer to our Monitor Monday listener poll. Would you refund? David, would you refund? Good morning, Chuck. So I listen to Monitor Monday because I learn stuff from my fellow panelists. And today, I think a whole bunch of people listening are going to learn something. I don't think a refund is necessary here. So let's think about a situation where a cardiologist interpreting an electrocardiogram or a radiologist is performing an interpretation at the request of an emergency department physician, and a medical reviewer determines that the test or other service should never have been performed because it wasn't medically necessary. Now, this is totally hypothetical, of course. You know, the emergency room physicians ordering ECGs on every patient, regardless of symptoms. So now the cardiologists have done the work associated with the interpretation, and they're completely unaware of the patient's underlying medical condition. The patient could be mid-MI, or they might be the spouse of a patient that the ED just opted to pluck electrodes on. The cardiologist only knows that they have an order to interpret the ECG they've received. Um, so they've heard that the organization is referring, is, I'm sorry, is refunding money because they've been uh, ordering unnecessary services, just like described in Nancy's poll. So it looks like a bunch of people are thinking we need to refund. And I'd say the answer is no, you don't. So why? Back when the Medicare statutes were passed, one provision of the law, Section 1870 of the Social Security Act, created protection when either a beneficiary or a provider or supplier was without fault for an overpayment. Now, the statutory provision is one of the most confusingly written 
that I have ever encountered. And I feel slightly inept every time I look at it. But courts have consistently interpreted the provision as saying that when either a beneficiary, provider, or supplier of services, or the Medicare beneficiary reasonably thought that a service in question was covered, that makes it contrary to equity and good conscience to recover the money, and the overpayment must be waived. The statute, and this is a statute, it's an actual law, includes a provision indicating that there's a presumption that if the beneficiary or the medical supplier is without fault, um, if, as long as the determination is happening more than five calendar years after the year in which payment was made. So if you've got a situation where you're reasonably relying on someone's judgment that a service is necessary, that gives you a strong argument no refund is necessary. Now, I think that argument is probably a bit weaker if the medical professionals involved all belong to the same organization. The government will be able to argue that the organization received the benefit and that collectively it had the knowledge. But if you're an ambulance company acting at another's request or a radiologist reading a film, this provides a strong argument you're not liable for someone else's medical necessity mistake. I should add that there's another statutory provision, 1879 of the Act, that provides even more support for the conclusion. That provision is slightly easier to read, and it says that if the beneficiary, provider, or supplier couldn't reasonably know a service wasn't medically necessary, any overpayment must be waived. So, Chuck, while the Scottish alternative group Delamitri may not agree, sometimes it's best to be the last to know. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder in the law firm of Fredrickson Byron in downtown Minneapolis. By the way, David Barbara sends along an email saying she likes the quiz. Thanks again. Last week, CMS finalized rules for inpatient rehabilitation facility providers. Angela Phillips has the details. And apparently, Angie, bigger changes are expected in 2020. Is that right? Absolutely. Um, good morning, everybody. As always, it's nice to update our listeners on what's happening related to inpatient rehab, and in many cases, what's now happening across all of post-acute care. The final rule for fiscal year 2019 is pretty vanilla. It was published on August 6th with very few changes noted between the proposed rule and the final one. The biggest changes are actually coming in fiscal year 2020, and in addition to what's in the inpatient rehab rule, we need to look further. What might be of even more interest to ERS are some of the updates to the IPS rules that allow IPS-excluded hospitals to develop IRF rehab units within those hospitals beginning in fiscal year 2020. So the easy stuff first. As expected, beginning October 1, 2018, the rehab final rule first allows the post-admission physician evaluation to count as one of the required three face-to-face -face visits in the first seven days, also allows the rehab physician to conduct the team meeting remotely without any additional documentation requirements specifying that it is done remotely and why, and it removes the IRF-specific admission order requirement to reduce duplication in the documentation requirements as admission orders are covered elsewhere in, in the regulations. 
The rule also removes the quality indicators for MRSA and patient influenza vaccine from the mandated reporting uh, for quality. And finally, the rule updates the federal prospective payment rates for fiscal year 2019, and CMS estimates an overall increase of about 1.3% after adjustments, and this is slightly higher than what was noted in the proposed rule. This results in the standard payment conversion rate increasing from $15,838 in fiscal year 2018 up to $16,052 in 2019. For 2020, however, while we expected the changes, they still are very significant and will have an impact on our practice. The biggest impact, obviously, will be from the removal of the FIM from the EarthPi document and the incorporation of certain data elements from the current quality reporting sections into the EarthPi for case mix group classification and ultimately payment purposes. In response to comments related to the proposed rule, however, CMS did note that an additional year of data would be incorporated into the analysis used to revise the determinations and the payment levels. <clears throat> Excuse me. So we're likely to see some minor changes in those tables <clears throat> in future rules. Here's the interesting thing. There are rules that impact EARTHS from the other final rules. So when we look at the fiscal year 2019 final rule for Medicare hospital inpatient prospective payment in long-term acute care hospitals, they included changes that overlap for EARTHS and psychiatric hospitals with, a key, with some key provisions that impact us. One, effective with cost reporting periods beginning on or after October 1, 2019, so fiscal year 2020, an IPS-excluded hospital would be permitted to have an excluded psychiatric and or rehab unit, and those IPS-excluded hospitals can't have a duplicative unit. What that means is that the rule would allow LTACs to have both IRF and psychiatric units, freestanding psychiatric hospitals to have IRF units, and freestanding earths to have psychiatric units, provided all the conditions of participation are met for those services. So expect some juggling in hospital beds and how specialty units grow or disappear. And finally, I just want to remind everybody that there were changes to the EarthPi document for October 1 of this year related to the medication regime and an additional scoring of the score code 10 for certain data elements that need to be incorporated into our documentation prior to October 1. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Angie, very much. That was Angela Phillips. Angie is one of the nation's foremost authorities on inpatient rehabilitation facilities, and you can read Angie's reporting on the IRF final rule on the REC Monitor homepage. Last week was a busy week for CMS. CMS was also involved in finalizing the rule for skilled nursing facilities. Laura Harris has that story. Good morning, Lori. Seems like some of the changes harken back to an earlier period of time. Oh, they do. Thank you, Chuck. Years ago, when I was a young rehab director and pilgrims were coming over on the Mayflower, CMS initiated a sea change in the manner in which skilled nursing facilities were reimbursed. Utilization in the SNFs had jumped quickly as geriatric rehab shifted there, and CMS responded with a seismic adjustment to the payment model. Enter PPS. We were doomed. Rehab and SNF was over. My organization, along with every other, laid off a third of our staff because clearly we couldn't support them anymore. 
It took about four months before we realized the enormity of our error. We tried desperately to get those therapists back, but we couldn't. Those were two of the hardest, most desperate years of my professional career, trying to give quality rehab when we gutted our own programs. So when I hear the discussion around the patient-driven payment model, aka PDPM, the new reimbursement method for SNFs that CMS just published in the final rule, I am overcome with deja vu. Starting in October of 19, the reimbursement principle is payment tied to conditions and patient service needs, heavily separated from utilization. Other criteria that will affect a SNF's overall reimbursement are length of stay, rehospitalization numbers, quality metrics, and eventually outcome measures. So this is a significant change, but here's what hasn't changed one iota. In order to be covered by Part A in a SNF, you must be receiving a daily skilled service that is reasonable and medically necessary. Because reimbursement's been decoupled from therapy intensity, I've heard and read a lot of discussion about how we won't need all these therapists anymore. And my response to that is, are we talking about the same industry? Skilling for nursing service alone exists now. It's always existed, and financially, it's highly viable. It's simply not the reason most patients come to a SNF after an acute event. Patients come for the partnership of skilled rehab and skilled nursing, and that is not going to change. The new payment model is designed to look at outcome. Section GG on the MDS was specifically designed for this purpose. And reporting SNF quality measures links to payment. For a Part A episode, payment declines as the length of stay progressive. This incentivizes shorter stays. But to date, no one's been able to explain to me how you maintain good outcomes, decrease the length of stay, and provide markedly less therapy. The amount delivered over an episode will be reported in the new model, was only intermittently reported before, and CMS has said that watching for a precipitous drop in delivery is one of the purposes of this reporting. An increasingly informed consumer also highlights the risk for responding to the new payment model with radical underdelivery. How much therapy will my mom get is a standard question when a family is touring. Tipping away from therapy simply ensures that the provider down the street who didn't use the new model as a justification to pare down the rehab department gets the majority of the patient. The new model encourages efficiency and efficacy. If a shorter stay is beneficial, how do we facilitate more expeditious recovery through interdisciplinary clinical processes? When payment is no longer linked to a specific amount of therapy, how can groups or concurrent sessions create more efficiency? If outcome becomes the performance standard, how do we make every minute of therapy have an impact? And we haven't even talked about how powerful a tool the rehab department is for preventing unnecessary rehospitalization, because that is a whole talk in itself. For years, therapy practitioners in SNF have, have felt chained by the rug, fearing that 10 minutes of underdelivery could negate payment for a week's worth of incredible services. It is no small relief to be free from that constraint, but like the days when PPS was launched, the inclination to panic, to overcorrect, to think short-term rather than long-range is pretty intense. We just mustn't lose sight of what won't change, even while we prepare for what will. Thank you, Chuck. Thank you, Lori. That was Lori O'Hara. Lori heads up the ADR Appeals and Clinical Review Team for Entrance Services, and you can read her report in this Thursday's Rec Monitor E-News. As we mentioned at the top of the broadcast, the proposed changes to E&M reimbursement continues to generate controversy. 
But beyond the headlines and the Twitter posting, Shannon DeCon has discovered a new and underreported aspect of the proposed change involves Modifier 25. With more on this developing story, here now is Shannon DeCon. Good morning, Shannon. Good morning, Chuck, and thanks again for having me on the broadcast this morning. Um, as you just mentioned, the proposed reimbursement model change for E&M, as well as the documentation relaxation changes, have been getting a lot of exposure, a lot of comments. But I think one of the things that we've glossed over is the potential reimbursement model change for the 25 modifier. CMS proposed change would impact not the documentation requirements, not the rules of when you can and cannot use it. It's rather a reimbursement model change to the 25 modifier. The proposal is suggesting that the reimbursement for the service would pay the lower value, either the value of the ENM or the procedure, but they would pay the lower of the two by 50%. This reimbursement change along with the proposed flat fee reimbursement on the ENM services could be catastrophic for a lot of practices. So I guess we need to turn around and say, why is CMS making this proposed change? For two reasons. The first, they say, is they're considering it a multiple payment reduction. We're all familiar with the multiple payment reduction model of related to surgeries. Well, they're now saying that that is applicable to an ENM with a procedure that has a zero to 10 day global period on during the same encounter. They're also stating that there are a lot of efficiencies that exist when an office visit and a procedure are performed on the same day by the same provider, which again would infer that the multiple payment rule should apply. Look, I think we could all have a nice uh, conversation about the potential inappropriate use of the 25 modifier. And I don't disagree that there should be some changes made, maybe even starting with the language of a significant and separately identifiable that's always been confusing for a lot of coders in the industry. But the current 25 modifier rules provide for treating a patient beyond the procedure. And therefore, I'm not sure that this rule should apply. Think of the current coverage for a 25 modifier. There's two ways. One is when the provider treats more than one problem during that encounter. So I'm not sure how that's a multiple payment rule. So is there gonna be a way to use something like a 59 modifier for those instances when we have providers that truly take care of more than one problem during the encounter? So let me quickly give you an example. A patient comes into the office today to be uh, have a lesion reviewed. The provider decides to biopsy the lesion, but also the patient has a rash, or maybe he, he has psoriasis or something that needs to be followed up by the provider. The E&M is typically reimbursed for the work of that separate procedure, not for the lesion biopsy. That's according to CMS, reimbursed within the RVU for the procedure. So I'm not sure how treating the second problem would be a multiple payment reduction. The other way that CMS provides currently for us to use a 25 modifier is when there is work above and beyond the quote, standard decision-making process for a patient. They give a very good example in the NCCI policy manual of a patient who needs laceration repair to the head, but the provider feels it necessary to do a full neurologic evaluation on that patient to ensure there's no neurologic deficits that need further testing. I guess in some ways I do understand how that could be considered a multiple payment reduction because you're already having to do a lot of the E&M work associated with that, but how are 
we going to differentiate between those cases when it is a more extensive workup and when it is truly two different problems? So is this going to encourage providers to now say, sorry, you're here for the injection or sorry, you're here for the biopsy. That's all I can take care of for you today. Based on analyzing the current rules and standards to the proposed and considering the multiple payment reduction, we can certainly see instances in which this could apply, and I think there's a happy medium here. Consider the financial implications for your practice. If this rule passes, again, it would mean that if the 25 modifier is used on a claim, the lower between the EM and the procedure would be reimbursed by 50%, and with that, I'll hand it back over to you. Thanks, Anna, very much. That was Tana Nakondish Tandis, the founder and the president of the National Alliance of Medical Auditing Specialists, NAMUS, as we know them to be. Thanks again, Shannon. And a program note, be sure to register to attend Shannon Nakondish's webcast on the pros E&M changes coming your way August the 23rd at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Register to attend. Go to the handout section. Today's Monitor Monday. Now, it's time for the results of our Monitor Money listener quiz. Once again, here's Nancy Beckley. Nancy. All righty, Chuck. This is quite interesting, and maybe David can comment it on a little bit later. 60% of our audience this morning said it needs to work with, they need to work with the ED, that's the, the cardiology department, to find out what claims were unnecessary, but it can keep the money for the necessary claims. 12% of our listeners and 13% of our listeners were kind of undivided between no, it's appropriate for the cardiology group to keep the money and i don't know that's why i listen to monitor monday so we've we've got people david 60 percent they need to work with the ed department chuck hey thanks Nancy, very much and uh, we don't have time to answer the questions you've been sending him i want to make sure that we answer those questions for you later this week that is going to be a wrap for this edition of monitor monday we thank you very much for being with us today special thanks to our outstanding panelists nancy beckley shannon deconda david glazer Dr. Ronald Hirsch, Laurie O'Hara, and Angela Phillips, and we thank you for being with us this morning. We look forward to your being with us next Monday morning, and I hope you're going to join us uh, for Dr. Hirsch's webcast. coming your way this Thursday, 1.30 p.m. Eastern. He's going to talk about the IPPS final rule. It's a chance for you to learn about the new and important change in inpatient admission order requirements. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Monitor Monday at Rack Monitor. Thank you very much for being with us. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor. <laughs>